heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. Hello, hello. I'm Daniel Francis Baranowski, and I'm your commentator today on the voice of the nation on the America Out Loud radio network. My, my gosh, where to start? Like you, I watch and read the news daily, and I've come to believe I've gone from being slapped silly to being slapped angry. Over the last nine weeks, all we've heard is one crisis story after another about our southwestern border, or a border that's no longer a border. And if it's not the border, it's about mass murders and the perennial democratic thrust to erase the Second Amendment, or how Joe Biden single-handedly making vaccines in his Delaware basement, or that he's on a perpetual self-congratulatory trip, acknowledging all the wonders he's accomplished in nine weeks. But before I crash headlong into the stories of the day, let me back up and share with you one of my favorite verses from a parable in the New Testament. Now, perhaps you're familiar with these words. Many are asked, but few are chosen. Perhaps you've heard this said in another way. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, if you recognize this, you know it's a passage from a parable from Matthew 22:14. Despite being raised Catholic, I'm not particularly religious, but I've always embraced these somewhat enigmatic words. I find them very applicable to so many endeavors in life. Here on the Voice of the Nation, on the America Out Loud radio network, I believe it can mean something special to those of you listening today. And any time you're listening to the many and varied programs on America Out Loud, please think of yourself as not only part of the many who are being called, but also among the few who have chosen to stay informed and be with us today. In 1748, the philosopher by the name of Charles Louis de Sassault said the deterioration of every government begins with the decay of the principle upon which it was founded. This is as true today as it was in 1748. Among the other principles our nation is built on, the meaning and spirit of the First Amendment is certainly an important one. The First Amendment reads, Congress shall make no law respecting and establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right to peacefully assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now I contend the decade Charles Lewis was speaking about in 1748 begins with the corruption of the freedom of speech part of that amendment and in particular our dedication to shun censorship and listen to all sides of an argument. Free speech, open speech, all speech in itself is not the problem. It's the uninformed, the misinformed, the purposeful lies, particularly in political speech, that should cause us great concern. Of course, this is an argument of the left. Speech by conservatives is constantly labeled by the left as uninformed, misinformed, are just purposeful lies. To my mind, 
We should let it all be. We should hear it all. We should decide through our own diligence to ferret out the truth. But certainly that has become an extremely complicated task in today's world of storytelling. And when we have the government itself, there's a certain care that must be taken. Now there are those of us who accept whatever the government tells us as the truth, the whole truth, and not something put out by CNN or MSNBC. Yes, our government has misinformed us in the past. It's even lied to us. Because of this, we must be ever vigilant. Absolutely, we must stay fully informed if we're going to understand our history, if we're going to teach our children our history, if we're going to speak up for what we call our inalienable constitutional rights, if we're going to be able to defend America, not only to outsiders, but to other misinformed Americans, and if we're going to understand and support conservatives who represent us in Congress. I do believe that listening to the numerous and varied conservative voices on this network, on the America Out Loud network, is going to enable you to forcefully brush off the propaganda that inevitably comes from most of the liberal media, a media which dominates the voice and video and digital airwaves, and the print media every day of the week. In 1967, Ronald Reagan said, he said many things in 1967, but this, this one caught my, caught my attention. You've probably heard it before. Freedom is a fragile thing, and it's never more than one generation away from extinction. It is not ours by way of inheritance. It must be fought for and defended constantly by each generation, for it comes only once to a people and those in world history who have known freedom and then lost it have never known it again. Unquestionably, the best way for most of us to fight for America is to hold our media and most importantly to hold our government accountable. You can do that by staying plugged into the many voices of truth and reason right here on America Out Loud. No, it's no secret. I'm grateful for the voices on this radio network, and I'm happy to be one of them. Well, let's get on to the program. Americans come from a proud tradition of storytellers. From my perspective, if conservatives were ever good at the craft of storytelling, we've certainly lost the knack of it over the past decade. Well, there are certainly romantics among us. I count myself as one of those. Most of us are value-driven, truth-telling realists. Life has become incredibly busy, and we're bombarded every day by every form of information delivered to us in every imaginable format, well, perhaps with the possible exception of enemas. Many of us, by necessity of an ever-increasingly busy life, have become more like Joe Sargent, Friday. You may remember that character. He's on an old TV series called Dragnet. Sergeant Friday would say, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. We don't relish a lot of emotion in our news that we listen to. I mean, who wants to cheer up while driving to work each morning? Besides, one half of us are trying to apply our mascara. 
nevertheless, we want the facts, and we don't want them distorted by someone lecturing us about our core values or how we should feel about the information we're presented. We certainly don't want to be lectured on how we should emotionally feel about the current events or if we don't agree with the particular political narrative that then somehow we're shameful Americans. Unfortunately, just the facts, ma'am, is not a path radical Democrats have taken over the past several years in selling us about what's important to them. Instead, they use emotional robbery and they demand our allegiance to the feelings and emotions of their arguments. Frankly, we're being out-talked. We're being out-story-told, if you will. And we're being emotionally jerked around by the left. And I, for one, I'm, I'm fed up with it. The left never lets a crisis go to waste, n nor do they ever let the facts or the truth about a crisis get in the way of a good old-fashioned, twisted story based on emotion. Take, for instance, issues of uh, race and gender. These two topics have dominated the left's fictional storytelling, uh, at least for the last five or six years. So who's telling these masterpieces of outrageous fortune? <laughs> well, it's those on the left who have devoted their storytelling to issues of race and gender. Democrats and the liberal media who echo them have dedicated themselves to identity politics and the divisiveness identity politics breeds. I think we're always quick to talk about identity politics as if we understand just how insidious, wicked, and sinister this approach to politics is and how poisonously self-serving it is. You know, identity politics, it's the process by which a smaller political group disregards the interests of the many to promote action on the behalf of a particular racial, religious, ethnic, social, or cultural identity group in order to promote their own politically specific interests, such as race or gender discrimination. Identity politics is the vehicle by which Democrats have attempted to label half the country as systemic racists. And its divisiveness doesn't really stop, doesn't stop there. If certain racial groups gain population dominance over other racial groups, well, there's all kinds of opportunity for conflict coming in the future. By example, let me just share with you one example. African Americans comprise 12% of our population. But Latino, our, our Hispanic population, has grown from 16 to 18% of our population in just a few short years. Moreover, our Asian population is growing at a, at a dynamic pace. How identity politics is going to pit these groups against each other remains to be seen. But for now, Identity politics has most certainly put African Americans and Caucasian Americans at odds with each other. Now, I believe the Black Lives Matter organization is a group dedicated to the worst kind of identity politics. 
Their politics have nothing to do with our shared values or goals as an American nation. At least I certainly don't think so. Instead, their aim is totally self-serving and is based on a narrative that says this sinful, evil nation we live in was built on the backs of African-American slave labor. Furthermore, it's attempted to blame and shame white Americans for this false emotional narrative. It's a narrative that claims white Americans are systematically and systemically, the two big S's today, systematically and systemically blinded to their substantial societal privilege at the expense of this minority group known as African Americans. This is just one of many perverse stories the left uses to misinform and shame two-thirds of America. They claim these Our moral stories are parables of life and injustice. But their goal is really to advance a very narrow political narrative at the expense of all of us. We must come to realize that storytelling issues are not a zero-sum game. There are winners and losers, and it appears that those with the best emotionally-based narratives win our most important political arguments. I find it interesting that when the the story becomes too complex, like the one going on right now with illegal immigration across our southern border, and that the Democrats can't dismiss the story with a quick appeal to some noble emotion such as humanitarian action or some move against Trumpian policies, then the left attempts to put a gag or blackout on the information. Now take, for instance, uh, migrants flooding our southern border. We're led to believe everyone is coming as refugees seeking asylum from violence and political persecution or some kind of deadly economic insecurity. And we're led to believe that things may be a little bit messy at the moment, but in general, all is well in hand and there's really nothing to see here. Oh, the irony in storytelling by the left. The Biden administration has covertly put a stop order on all media visits that were heretofore facilitated by Customs and Border Patrol agents during this current surge of illegal immigration. Yeah, that's that's right. They have surreptitiously put an information gag order and a do-not-photograph order even on congressional delegations attempting to visit the border to better understand what the facts are on the ground. And there are so many other not-so-well-meaning consequences of this open Biden border policy, which they don't want to tell you about. The Mexican cartels are registering upwards of $14.5 million a day in trafficking unaccompanied minors and all other immigrants from across the world into America. To do anything less than sort of wholeheartedly welcoming an unlimited number of these destitute people is considered shamefully un-American. It's indecent. It's inhumane. But isn't this a sinister and morally corrupt way to conduct 
our nation's immigration policy? The left, and by that I mean Democrats and the hyper-liberal mainstream media, they want to put us in situations to feel ashamed of ourselves, to be ashamed of our wealth and our largesse, to feel ashamed that we've achieved these things through hard work. And believe me, being raised Catholic, I, I, know, I know all about guilt. They guilt us into believing that we have no right to have been born into a country with, with such opportunity. And, and who are we to deny the same opportunity to others that are looking for the same things? I mean, even these recent Biden t-shirts supplied by the left and worn by migrants are an appeal to our emotions. These t-shirts don't say, please let us in because we know we can make a tremendous contribution as new Americans. No, instead they say, Biden, please let us in. Shame on us if we turn anybody away at this point. Don't let the fact that there's a six-year-old wearing one of these t-shirts claiming political asylum in America. Don't let that get in the way of any rational understanding of this phenomena. Quite obviously, we're xenophobic racists and we're incapable of separating truth from emotion. You can't help but notice that they failed to tell us that their policies are costing American taxpayers upwards of $5 million a day right now and increasing as the number of migrants cross the border. Not only that, this is adding to our tax burden already of close to $160 billion a year spent on illegal immigration. And what about the increase in crime that inevitably accompanies these hordes of unvetted migrants? And, and what about national security interests of Americans? Should we just brush all of these aside now that it's been more than 20 years since 9-11? So many questions, so many stories. Well, be before I go any further, let me take an opportunity to introduce myself. Once again, my name is Daniel Francis Baranowski, and I'm speaking to you from that great free state commonly known as Florida on the America Out Loud radio network. I grew up in Mesa, Arizona, attended the University of Arizona as an undergrad, and I practiced as a registered respiratory therapist for 15 years before going back to grad school. I eventually found my way back to grad school at Harvard University. Then time flew by, and I'm now a retired teaching fellow from the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard University School of Public Health in Boston. Now, if you want a real challenge as a conservative, Take a teaching position at Harvard University and live in Boston for 15 years. That, <laughs> that'll, be, that'll challenge you, let me tell you. Among other things, I've been a lifelong conservative as well as a lifelong student of the American Civil War. Now, now given current events, my long course of study of the American Civil War seems to be more relevant every day. Well, as I said in the beginning of the show, I'm slapped angry at this point, and it's time to do something about it. So let's start by demasking, debunking, and stripping the liberal tar off the truth of a couple of our most pressing matters. 
And it's a perplexing chore to figure out which of so many things we should talk about. Sanctuary cities, cancel culture, censorship. How about the Capitol Wall? What about this issue with equity versus equality? What a boondoggle that is. Uh, Social and something called environmental justice. How about positive discrimination? That's, That's the new way of saying affirmative action. Given that time's limited, allow me to suggest uh, two critical issues today. Each of these fits the message of false or at best misleading storytelling and how we've been led astray by our politicians. I think each of these is also a, a timely topic. The first centers around the administration's outrageous lies and propaganda about COVID-19, the American Rescue Act, and Biden's administration, his really unwarranted sort of self-congratulatory backslapping over COVID-19 vaccine production and his administration. I mean, I have an audio clip of recent Joe Biden speeches. I'm going to play one of these clips for you that really highlight these problems. Second, I wish to call out the left's really recent disingenuous propaganda and a distasteful narrative about Asian-American discrimination. Uh, The event that highlights this is the recent shooting in Atlanta, Georgia, of eight massage parlor workers who were murdered by a lone psychotic white male. Six Six of these tragically unfortunate victims were Asian American women. The other two victims were white, one being a male, the other being a female. Like with all things that appear emotional and racially motivated, President Trump is at the top of the left's uh, list of perpetrators, if you will. Purportedly, this questionable rise in hate violence, as outlined by Kamala Harris and Joe Biden recently, and I have a clip to play play of you of that too, against Asian Americans, particularly female Asian Americans, is due to President Trump's attribution of COVID-19 to the Asian country of China. Now, supposedly, there's a cause and effect between Trump's frank talk about COVID-19 and its Chinese origins. So we'll look into that. Now, these heinous murders of six Asian American women who worked in Atlanta's massage parlors were allegedly murdered by a psychotic white guy. So the story was first reported as an act of white supremacist against Asian Asians in general, and in particular women. The alleged murderer, a 21-year-old named Robert Aaron Long, he also used a gun to commit these disgusting crimes. So naturally, gun control advocates are beating their pots and pans again about our Second Amendment. So we'll review the facts about this story in this story and sort of ferret out how the left has distorted these facts to advance a crazy narrative that America is a xenophobic, gun-crazy nation. These uh, two stories and the moral shaming techniques used by Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and Biden's administration, the Democrats in general, would be entertaining if they weren't so twisted and disingenuous about 
what's really going on in America. Uh, the two topics I've picked out, along with some observations about the southern border, have one theme in common. They're all somehow Donald Trump's fault and the fault of those who call themselves Trumpers. So let's let's get started with Biden's administration false hyping of the COVID-19 trillion dollar uh, American rescue plan and Biden's apocryphal stories about his success of the COVID-19 vaccine creation, the production, and the distribution. Joe and Camilla and scores of other Biden surrogates are out across the nation this week selling the benefits of the Democrats' recently passed COVID-19 $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan. Remember, only $0.09 cents of the dollar goes to anything even remotely related to COVID. Some families are going to receive as much as $22,000 in the lump sum payment. And regardless of need or understanding, the government's giving us our money back, which we are going to eventually have to pay back. Now, those in lower tax brackets are counting on Americans in higher tax brackets to eventually pay back the lion's share of the Democrats' gratuitous money laundering scheme to buy votes. This isn't a Robin Hood tale. It's really a story that foreshadows socialism. Take from the rich, give to those less wealthy. Yes, income, income inequality is a problem in America. But the greatest reduction in income inequality occurred during the Trump years. What the Biden administration is up to is just pure socialism. It's a transfer of wealth, as simple as that. Nevertheless, uh, this is debt most of us in our lifetime, certainly not in mine, we're ever going to be responsible for, but it's going to fall on our children and our children's children. That is, if in fact they're wealthy enough to pay the tax. U.S. Treasury has never been as busy as it is now printing money. The presses are working overtime seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 30, 365 days a year, and I think even beyond that. The problem is we have nothing to back up this paper money debt other than the good faith we will eventually retire this debt. In the meantime, foreign governments like China will hold these loans for tens of years to come. The lie that bothers me most, perhaps, is about who is responsible for this miracle called COVID-19 vaccines. As you listen to this clip of Joe Biden on a recent COVID vaccine update, as you listen to the following clip of Joe Biden's recent COVID vaccine update, I want you to think about the damage created by the blue state governors and their numerous lockdowns. Think about the inconsistent nonsense from Dr. Fauci and his public health mandates about masking, social distancing, and hand washing. Keep in mind all the school shutdowns and the failures on the part of teachers' unions to reopen our schools. Think about the increases in drug addiction and in mental health distress, and ask yourself where in the Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID rescue plan 
are there funds to treat a 344% increase in reports of teenagers committing acts of intentional self-harm. Yeah, kids 12 to 17 committing acts of intentional self-harm. As you listen, also keep an ear out for where's the money and the plan for COVID testing of the hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants flooding our, our border cities. Listen and tell me if you can discern anything about COVID super spreader events as thousands of unaccompanied minors are held in ridiculously overcrowded holding facilities. Do you know there's not one holding facility along the U.S. southern border that's under 500% over capacity? In fact, some of these centers are at 800% capacity. That's, that's a head-scratcher. Think back to all those nasty narratives, all those nasty emotional narratives being told to us by Democrats and the liberal mainstream media about cruelty of the Trump administration, separating children at the border, separating them from their parents and caging them, literally caging them. And finally, when we come back from the break... And I play this clip for you. Listen to see if you can hear any credit given to the prior administration for the Warp Speed program or for the dozens of heretofore unknown therapeutic agents we now have to treat COVID. So we're going to take a quick break, and I'll be back. Please stay with me. Listen to Malcolm, the voice of a nation, on iHeartRadio or our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older, until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Fighting every day against the internet monopolies that are trying to stifle our right to free speech and freedom of assembly. Five years on the air and we will not be silenced. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Welcome back. We're going to start the second part of today's presentation with an audio clip from one of Joe Biden's most recent updates on how COVID vaccinations are going. So here we go with Joe Biden, a teleprompter, and Joe's speechwriters who are up to telling a story. Good to see you all. When I announced in early December that I had a goal 
that I set of administering 100 million shots for the virus in the first 100 days of our office. 100 million shots in 100 days. It was considered uh, ambitious. Some even suggested it was somewhat audacious. Experts said that it was, uh, the plan was, quote, definitely aggressive, and distribution would have to be seamless for us to be successful. One headline simply put it, quote, it won't be easy, end of quote. Well, it wasn't. When I took office, when we took office, there was a lot that had to be done. We needed more vaccines, more vaccinators, more places for people to get vaccinated. And we needed a whole-of-government approach. So I directed Jeff Zients, the coordinator of our COVID-19 response, to put us on a war footing, and I meant that in a literal sense, to get us on track to truly beat this virus. And I'm proud to announce that tomorrow, 58 days into our administration, we will have met my goal of administering 100 million shots to our fellow Americans. That's weeks ahead of schedule. And even with the setbacks we faced during the winter storms. And there's another big step on the path to checking the uh, putting checks in pockets and shots in people's arms. When we crossed the 50 million doses just three weeks ago, I told you that every time we hit the 50 million mark, I'd update you on our progress. So here's where we are today. Eight weeks ago, only 8% of seniors, those most vulnerable to COVID-19, had received a vaccination. Today, 65% of people aged 65 or older have received at least one shot, and 36% are fully vaccinated. And that's key, because this is the population that represents 80% of the well over 500,000 COVID-19 deaths that have occurred in America. We have nearly doubled the amount of vaccine doses that we distribute to states, tribes, and territories each week. We have gone from one million shots a day that I promised in December, before we were even sworn in, to an average of two and one-half million shots a day, outpacing the rest of the world significantly. And here's how we accomplished this. Using the power given to a president under the Defense Production Act, we expedited critical materials in vaccine production, such as equipment, machinery, and supplies. We work with vaccine manufacturers to speed up the delivery of millions more doses and brokered a historic manufacturing partnership between competing companies who put patriotism and public health first. These steps put us on track to have enough vaccine enough vaccine supply for every adult American by the end of May, months, months earlier than anyone expected. And we stood up or supplied more than 600 community vaccination sites that are administering hundreds of thousands of shots per day. We launched the federal pharmacy program, which has allowed millions of Americans to get a shot at one of 1,000, or excuse me, one of 14,000 local pharmacies in this country, the same way they get their flu shot. And for folks who aren't near a pharmacy 
our mass vaccination center, we've supplied more than 500 mobile clinics, like pop-up sites or vans, meeting people where they are, meeting people where they are. We've developed nearly, we deployed nearly 6,000 federal personnel, including FEMA, active duty military, and Department of Health and Human Services to support vaccinations and serve as vaccinators, putting the needle in people's arms. We're also supplying vaccines to community health centers to reach those who have been the hardest hit, the hardest hit, and suffered the most, especially Black, Latino, Native American, and rural communities. This is really important because we believe that speed and efficiency must be matched with fairness and equity. Now, when President Harris and I took uh, a virtual tour of a vaccination center in Arizona not long ago, one of the nurses on that, on that tour, injecting people, giving vaccinations, said that each shot was like administering a dose of hope. A dose of hope. That's how she phrased it. Well, who could possibly believe that Biden's speechwriters could pack so many untruths in a 10-minute show? One for Joe to deliver while reading a teleprompter. And may I note that Joe's squinting during the entire time he was reading off the teleprompter. It's quite telling. Moreover, Joe has trouble enough in following along as the lines of text scroll through this digital cue card system. In any event, I just learned that Joe Biden's first formal press conference, which was scheduled for this evening, is going to happen at 1 p.m. today. It appears Joe couldn't stay up that late, and so they're doing it this afternoon. Yes, yes, yes. I apologize for the sarcasm. Okay, not really. We also learned yesterday that Joe's placed uh, Camilla in charge of all things concerning the southern border. Joe said that Camilla was the best person he could think of to assign this duty. As you may have guessed, in my opinion, she's got to be one of the worst persons to have put in charge of the border. But <laughs> that's another whole show. If you get a chance, mark this date in your calendar. It absolutely appears that the White House is preparing to turn the White House over to Camilla soon. I definitely think it's going to happen before Christmas, and I wouldn't be surprised if it happens as soon as this summer. Well, let's face it, Joe just isn't up to the job. I believe this was actually planned by the radical left from the very moment they decided to back Joe for president. I think they knew of his problems, his cognitive problems. Additionally, this was a way for them to Trojan horse in to the presidency, a woman of color, and I might add a Democrat woman of color in the White House. When we vote for president, very few of us ever think much about the, uh, the president candidates running mates. I mean, I don't, I certainly don't make my decisions on voting for president based on who they've chosen to run with. I predict this is going to change things in a big way, or as President Trump might have said, it's going to change them bigly.
You may have noticed at the end of this clip, Joe referred to Kamala as President Harris. Well, back to my comments on Joe's uh, COVID vaccine pep talk. When I first heard this, um, I heard it in real time. I, c I couldn't help but be stunned to listen to, to Joe again pretend Donald Trump and the Warp Speed Project never existed. In a moment, I'm going to play for you a clip from the Mark Levin podcast when Mark recently interviewed Admiral Brett Girard, who's a physician, and, and he interviewed him in response to Joe's COVID speech that we just heard part of. Now, Dr. Giroux, Brett Giroux, he's an American pediatrician and a former four-star admiral in the U.S. Public Health Service. He last served as the 16th Assistant Secretary of Health for President Trump from February of 2018 right up to January 19, 2021. And he oversaw critical parts of the entire Warp Speed program. But first, before we get to that clip, let me continue with my thoughts on Joe's COVID presentation. Listen, there was nothing audacious or definitely aggressive about Biden's goals and program to achieve his 100 million shots in 100 days. This process was already ahead of itself long before Joe took the oath of office and certainly before he announced this goal. The idea that he invoked the Defense Production Act which somehow accelerated the vaccine production process, is fr just frankly not true. Oh, Joe did invoke the Defense Production Act, but it, had, but it changed nothing. It, it just gave him the opportunity to say that he invoked it. It's a big deal. And you'll find the same hyperbole about the number of pharmacies and community centers that Biden's administration allegedly set up in 48 days. And to say that black, Latino, and Native Americans have been neglected in this vaccine process and that the Biden administration, as opposed to the Trump administration, is finally proceeding with fairness and equity, is the equivalent to another Biden-fractured fairy tale. Let me give you just one example of the false premise that somehow we're treating different minorities unfairly during this pandemic. The University of Chicago Medical Center just released a peer-reviewed study in JAMA. It's a correlational study between vitamin D deficiency and the likelihood of contracting COVID-19, the likelihood of being hospitalized, and subsequently the likelihood of dying from the disease. Now listen to this. This is important. They found that African Americans are slightly more likely to get COVID than white patients. Furthermore, they found that African Americans are 2.9 or almost three times more likely to be hospitalized if they contract COVID than white patients, and nearly twice as likely to die of COVID than whites. But interestingly, the risk of having these results in blacks was two point uh, uh, nearly three times greater when blacks had a vitamin D level between 30 nanograms per milliliter and 39 nanograms per milliliter, which is a little on the low side. For those with vitamin D levels above 40 nanograms per milliliters, those risk factors disappear. 
Now, although this this is a large study, and it was a, it's an observational study, you've got to be incredibly careful about extrapolating uh, findings from something like this. But this is one of many such studies that show that there are other causes of health outcome differences between whites and blacks that are not attributable to the fairy tales about social equity, racial discrimination, or the lack of social justice. Now, finally, there's several minutes of the speech I didn't include in this the show. And in this part of the speech, let me tell you, Joe gets around to condescendingly lecturing us again about the requirement to be masked at all times, to socially distance, and of course to wash our hands like good little boys and girls. And then we can have a 4th of July. Naturally, Biden gave this speech after we already found out that the six-foot social distance gold standard for safe, safe separation is based on nothingness. No science whatsoever. Fauci and Klan just pulled the six-foot rule out of their medical bag of tricks. And as it turns out, Europe and even the World Health Organization, which we don't have a lot of respect for, have been using the one meter, or approximately 39 inches, as their standard for physical separation during the whole pandemic. You bet this had an impact on school openings, on restaurant logistics, and just about every other kind of service business. Furthermore, as a registered respiratory therapist, having directed large departments of respiratory care at the Johns Hopkins Hospital and at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, I have a whole lot to say about the ridiculous waffling masking standards espoused by the CDC and Dr. Fauci over the last year. But I'll hold that for another time. Finally, as I mentioned earlier, there's something that's conspicuously absent, not only from this speech, but from all speeches by Joe and Camilla over the past two weeks. And that's COVID testing of the hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants crossing the border who are in custody of Border Patrol agents. As it turns out, charity groups have been testing the, these migrants, and they're testing them after they've been released from the Border Patrol, waiting to be transferred to various places throughout the country. Infection rates reported from these non-governmental agencies, the Catholic Charities, the Lutheran Charities, have been as high as 50% among these migrants, these current group coming through. Yet nothing's being done to quarantine these people or to check for any other communicable diseases as they cross the border and move into the country. Now, personally, I think this is the national security threat. And not only COVID, but there's another of, uh, there's a number, I think, of other communicable diseases that are likely coming across undetected at the same time. Now, now who's concerned about this? Maybe this won't surprise you. It did me. The Hispanic and Latino Americans are among those who feel very strongly about COVID testing at the border. And it makes sense. These migrants are likely to end up in their neighborhoods. They feel so strongly about it that 92% voiced strong agreement about COVID testing at the border in a recent survey and that this testing should unequivocally happen at the border and that people should be held in quarantine. 
Now, this is in contrast to the general population, who are at 90% in agreement with these actions. If you've had to go through the airport at any time over the last year or recently, or if you've come back recently into the country from overseas, you know the extensive vetting that goes on for COVID in particular. Now, the Biden administration has been in full support of vaccinating teachers, which again comes up in all the Joe Biden's talks uh, I've reviewed. But until recently, his administration completely ignored the vaccination requirements, needs, and bequests of Border Patrol agents who are dealing with COVID carriers at the border every day. So far, more than 5,000 agents have contracted COVID and 26 of them have died of COVID. Now, this is being remedied and they currently have been granted vaccine priority. But enough of my comments. Let me stop here and let's plug in Dr. Giroux's thoughts on Joe Biden's rewriting of COVID's vaccine history. Well, what we accomplished, and, and again, it was a whole of nation effort led by the president, the vice president, was something unprecedented. The development and authorization of three vaccines, and there will be a fourth very soon in under a year. That's unheard of. And it happened not because of, you know, the scientists in the laboratory. They had a, they had a major contribution to it, but to scale it up and to have it ready and to have it authorized and have it tested and have it distributed was a result of this administration, the Trump administration. When we left, we had already bought 900 million doses, 900 million doses with an option for 2 billion more. We had enrolled 70,000 vaccine sites. Uh, when you hear uh, Biden saying there's not enough vaccination sites or vaccinators, we had already enrolled 70,000. We had done what's called the PrEP Act. So all pharmacists, that's including 40,000 pharmacies nationwide, pharmacists, pharmacy interns, pharmacy technicians could give the vaccine. We made it available so that the National Guard uh, emergency medical technicians could provide the vaccine. And you know what? By the time we left office on January 20th, we had already achieved the rate of 1 million doses per day, already achieving Biden's goal. Uh, in fact, January 20th, 1.5 million doses went into arms. And if Biden's going to hold himself accountable, our rate for the first 100 days in his office should be almost 200 million shots in arms, not the 100 million lowball goal. So um, I, I just wanted to say that up front. Look, this is a great American story. The Biden team has taken the baton and they're generally following the plan and it's generally going very well. But the fact that this exists is from the Trump administration, and uh, that should be acknowledged. Very interesting comments from the doctors row. There's more clips, and I recommend that you look up that podcast. Uh, Mark has those online, and they're just about in all the places you can get podcasts. I believe it was March 19th. It was either the 18th or 19th, but I recommend that you look it up. Dr. Giroux had a lot to say. Time is short. I always get caught short <laughs> in all the things I'd like to say. So we're going to march right along to the um, Asian American discrimination, according to Kamala and Joe, having to do with the hellacious murders that took place in Atlanta, Georgia. 
Now, on a recent broadcast, an HBO broadcast of Real Time, which I rarely watch with host Bill Maher, he stated that there's an epidemic of violence against Asians, and it's horrible, and that we have to do something about it. And he went on to say that the Atlanta shootings are likely not part of that. Now, I can dispute the claims, and I will, that there's a nationwide epidemic of violence against Asian Americans, particularly because of this uh, pandemic being labeled uh, the China uh, virus. But I do absolutely agree that the murders of six Asian American women in Atlanta were horrific. Next, I'm going to play a short clip of Kamala Harris talking at Emory University uh, just recently after those murders and talking specifically to, the, to those murders. And I'd like to see what you think of it. Eight of our neighbors were killed in a heinous act of violence. Violence that has no place in the state of Georgia or in the United States of America. And we were reminded yet again that the crises we face are many, that the foes we face are many. As the President and I discussed with our AAPI community in a meeting earlier today, whatever the killer's motive, these facts are clear. Six out of the eight people killed on Tuesday night were of Asian descent. Seven were women. The shootings took place in businesses owned by Asian Americans. The shootings took place as violent hate crimes and discrimination against Asian Americans has risen dramatically over the last year and more. In fact, over the past year, 3,800 such incidents have been reported, two of three by women. Everything from physical assaults to verbal accusations. And it's all harmful. And sadly, it's not new. Racism is real in America, and it has always been. Xenophobia is real in America, and always has been. Sexism, too. In the 1860s, as Chinese workers built the Transcontinental Railroad, there were laws on the books in America forbidding them from owning property. In the 1940s, as Japanese-American soldiers defended our nation, more than 120,000 Japanese-Americans were forced to live in internment camps, an obvious and absolute abuse of their civil and human rights. Asian-Americans have been attacked and scapegoated. People who are perceived as Muslim know what it was like to live in our country after 9-11. For the last year, we've had people in positions of incredible power scapegoating, scapegoating Asian Americans, people with the biggest pulpits spreading this kind of hate. Ultimately, this is about who we are as a nation. This is about how we treat people with dignity and respect. Well, did you hear the shaming? Let's begin with some good old Joe Biden malarkey, as spoken by Kamala Harris. What in tarnation does the 1942 internment of Japanese Americans and Japanese immigrants for the duration of World War II have to do with the alleged 
Asian American hate crimes in Atlanta in 2021. I can't figure it out. 90% of us weren't even alive at the time. Let me venture, in fact, 95% of us weren't alive. There have been very few World War II veterans that are still alive today. And I seriously doubt that the psychotic who shot these women at the massage parlors even knows anything about the heinous, totally uncalled for internment of Japanese Americans. Furthermore, it was a Democrat, in fact, the Democrats, Democrat of all Democrats, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who imposed this internment during the war. Unexplainably, President Roosevelt didn't do likewise with the Germans or the Italians, who we were also at war with. But go figure. I'm not sure what went into that thinking, but it certainly has nothing to do with 2021 and this alleged Asian American hate. Unquestionably, this is one of the most ridiculous, unfair, and discriminatory acts any democratic country did during the war. In total, approximately 120,000 people of Japanese descent were interned. It's also good to know that finally in 1988, Congress got around to passing the Civil Liberties Act, and they paid reparation to these individuals and or their ancestors to the tune of about $40,000 in today's currency. Now, this hardly makes up for the shame and embarrassment and the massive disruption of these people's life, but I posit it hasn't got a darn thing to do with how anybody thinks about Asian Americans today. Even Camilla's reference to Chinese labor in the 1880s is ten times the stretch of relevance of what we did to the Japanese in 1942. This evil shooting that took place in Atlanta is totally disconnected from these two reference events in the 19th and 20th centuries. And that's just for starters. Apparently the white woman and the white man murdered in the same event are irrelevant simply because they're not Asian. And as for the 3,800 crimes against Asian Americans that she referenced at the beginning of this, this is, this is so much baloney. It turns out a sale, an activist group collected this data. It's all self-reported. Verbal harassment, 70% of the complaints, and shunning, 20% of the complaints. And if anything, Oakland, uh, California has had a problem with an awful lot of black on Asian crime. So, enough of that. But you can see, storytelling plays a very important role in how these people talk to us. Well, there I've gone and done it again. I've run out of time. My name is Daniel Francis Baranowski. Thank you so much for being with me today. We'll speak again soon. Take care.